Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm hooning, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. I'm pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 718. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. Have you missed us? I've been away. Yes, I've been, I've been poorly. I mean, I think you kind of know if you've kind of regular the Starship's over. I had a little bit of trouble, yes. I faced that demon we're all kind of frightened of and terrified and has took loved ones and everything. But, hopefully touch, that's my desk there, touch wood. I'm kind of through it there now. And it's, I'll give you a little kind of heads up if you haven't, you know what I mean, I kind of had black, cancer of the bladder so i've had everything removed bladder prostate and glands and actually it was done by a robot do you know what i mean just fascinating today's technology you know and i've seen like the the little almost capsules where the the surgeons sit and you know and it's a, totally away from the actual you know where i was i was up i was kind of propped upside down so my head was kind of almost touching the floor when i was doing so all my organs would actually fall and there was like space to to move around this is what i was told <laughs> just bizarre anyway <clears throat> it's been 15th of august is when i went i went for it and it's took us this while mind you i'm not joking recovery what a bitch man no getting away from it but today's the day starship's over Boots our engines up and we go back into deep space looking for some fantastic stories. And Nick, 
my editor and Will, the sound engineer, have just got some cracking ones lined up as well. So big thank you to them for sticking by us as well and hanging on, you know what I mean, just to kind of see what would happen. But like I say, we're here and we're kicking off and we're going to kick off with Lincoln Michelle, his story, Red Oil. And we've also got our very own Amy H. Sturgis is back as well with her looking back at genre history. That's all coming in today's show. Do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So jumping straight into Lincoln's story, Red Oil. I'll give you a little heads up about Lincoln. Lincoln Michelle's debut novel, The Body Scout, was named one of the 10 best science fiction and fantasy books of 2021 by the New York Times and one of the 50 best science fiction of all time by Esquire. He also the author, he's also the author of the story collection Upright Beasts, which is Coffee House Press, and the co-editor of the anthologies Tiny Crimes, what a great name, by Capult, and Tiny Nightmares as well. His fiction can be found in the Paris Review, Lightspeed, Fantasy and Science Fiction, One Story and Elsewhere, including Starship Sova. And you can find him online at LincolnMichelle.com. And he got a newsletter, Countercraft. Now this story is narrated by Anthony Bampton. Anthony Bampton is a voice actor who looks just slightly off from how he sounds. From his secret volcano lair in Minnesota, he narrates podcasts, leases his soul to corporate America, and he can also be heard on the Tales to Terrify podcast and has recorded both for Farfetch Fables, one of our long-lost podcasts, and the Cursed Inn podcast. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Red Oil. The app tests for human blood. That's the problem. You'd think you could smuggle in runoff from the butcher shop in a Ziploc bag slipped inside your underwear, but not anymore. There were a few incidents early on. A couple CEOs ended up in the ICU, forced to get the cheap stuff from hospital fridges. With the new screening module, it's 100% human blood. Fresh, warm, and young. Emphasis on young. After 27, you're done in a big market. If you're in a small town, you might be able to eke out a living till 30. After that, no one wants your wares. Not at bleeders' prices. One client told me it'd be like going to a Michelin star restaurant and getting macaroni with prego sauce. By the time I wake, groggy and dried out, my phone is dinging. You've got three ding-dongs in the queue, my roommate says. Tanya is poaching eggs while the pump whirs. These days, she's working temp as a milker. She'd just gotten a well-paying gig as a surrogate, but the baby ended up stillborn. Unregulated chemicals in the food, the doctors thought, or possibly just bad luck. The clients have been threatening to sue, but it probably won't go anywhere. In the meantime, I'm squeezing out the last drops I can, financially speaking, she says. I maneuver around Tanya to the fuel drawer. It's important not to drain yourself on an empty stomach, and my first gig is in an hour. Justin, this is Miss Oates, Tanya says, nodding toward the screen on the wall, where a woman in a navy skirt is typing into her phone. Tanya turns from the camera and rolls her eyes. She wanted to watch. A lot of my clients do, too. They say it's for quality control, safety, peace of mind. But I see their grinning eyes as they slide in the needle. The woman on the wall looks up. If I'm paying for it, I want to know it's fresh. And it's Dr. Oates, please. I worked hard for my degree. Tanya pops off the cup, sloshes for the camera. 
Full up. Moo. Dr. Oates nods, says her courier will be by shortly. She gives Tanya the once-over another time, sighs. I remember when I had a body like yours, young, supple, and filled to the brim. I hope you don't mind my saying this, but you're lucky the pregnancy went kaput. Stay young and free. I wish I had. Tanya maintains her smile, but I see her twitch. My first match of the day is Chad Chapman. He buzzes me into his office just as he's storming out the door. I received my DNA detective results and I'm two parts busy, three quarters busy as fuck. Walk with me. I trail him down the carpeted hall, annoyed. I get paid by the pint, not by the minute. However, Chapman is a boss-tier client, which means his ratings have extra weight. He's a junior president. Or maybe a senior VP. I can never keep track. I've got a meeting in 15. Well, it's already started, but it's good to make him sweat. Chapman is youngish, yet old enough to sense the next generation creeping up behind him, knives drawn. The ones with fresh degrees, daddy's connections, and trust funds the size of war elephants. That's why Chapman gets the shots of youth pumping in his middle-aged veins. Plus, he works at Plethora Inc., the company that owns Bleeder, and everyone's required to taste the wares. My phone buzzes. It's my little brother, Tomas. Are you still coming today? Sorry, but I need it pretty bad. I'm already three days late slipping him his CCs. With our father MIA, again, and our mom mostly passed out, I'm all Tomas has. Yeah, I got you. I write back. Be there in an hour. Chapman speaks quickly, not noticing my attentions calculating subway routes. You've heard of Hudson Analytics? Of course you haven't. If you had, you'd be a board member, not a blood bag. We're going to acquire them today. Hostile as fuck acquisition. I'm talking Caesar and Gaul, Alexander and Persia, Genghis and half the goddamn world. I didn't know you were a history buff. I podcast while I pump iron, Chapman says. Now I need iron pumped in me. Melinda here will fill you in. I realize a woman swinging a metal briefcase has fallen into pace with us. She's wearing a silver power suit that wavers like mercury under the hallway lights. She straps a sphygmo around my bicep as we stride, checks the count. He's ready. Fill me in, I say. I misspoke. Chapman stops in front of the door. He grins. I meant fill me in, with your oil. I'm woozy and ambling down the street to the automated taco truck. The meat sizzles while the robot arm whirs. I chomp two carnitas in four bites. Feel the heat as my body's factory gets to work. It's breaking down particles, smelting protein, and forging it as something I can sell. Later I'll tap the well, let it burst forth. Red oil. A holographic face stares down at me as I take the subway uptown to Tomas. A young woman in a leather jacket with eyeliner running over her sneer. The ad reads, Blood. Sweat. Tears, which is struck out. Money. An ad for Cryby, a new service from Bleeder's rival company, U-Fluid. You can sell every part of yourself these days. Every fluid, every organ, every itty-bitty bone. Although I find it best to stick to the renewables. The old-timers grumble. They say the young don't know an honest day's work. Blame us for their generation automating half the economy and outsourcing the rest. I'd like to see them try flipping burgers faster than a robot arm that gets paid in Greece. Anyway, I'm not sure it was different for the old-timers. My great-grandfather ripped up vegetables in the bright sun until his back was drenched in sweat. My grandfather hammered nails until his hands bled. 
You always had to sell your sweat and blood. Only difference is now you can do it directly. As for my father, last I heard, he was working in the Pfizer parts gardens, tending to the organs and limbs to be sold to the super-rich. Mom showed me some photos he'd sent. I thought they'd be little fingers and eyeballs growing in petri dishes. As it turned out, I wasn't far off. But mostly I don't hear about my father much anymore, which, as far as I'm concerned, is more than enough. Tomas is on Mom's couch, smiling dryly. Mom either wasn't home, or she's home and passed out again, blood more old crow bourbon than hemoglobin. If so, I'll have to do the laundry. She leaks out, big yellow circles. Justin, Tomas says. Thank God, I thought I might die on this couch. Wake up in another, less shitty reality. Such a drama queen, I say, though I can see he's so clammy his shirt is soaked. Tomas turns over. I jab the insulin needle into his buttocks through the boxers. It's not as hygienic, but he's shy, and we all deserve little luxuries. Tomas sits back up and rolls the insulin vial around the table. How many bleeds did it cost you this time? I fish around in my backpack for a bag of plantain chips and a coconut water, fling them at his belly. Drink something, you look like a dehydrated dog. And you know I don't keep track of that shit. Tomas sighs. He gulps the water and slowly opens the chips. He can see it on my face. I never was a good liar. I know exactly what his insulin cost me, drop for drop. Tomas would bleed himself if the screener wouldn't flag his disease. The tech barons and finance lords who buy young blood are superstitious. They think they're absorbing your power, growing stronger by making you weak. They don't want to pay for blood from someone who might die before them. So Tomas works odd jobs, servicing the self-service machines at the bodega and temping in medical trials. It'd be enough to scrape by if a tiny vial of insulin didn't cost a large paycheck. My brother is perking up. I've got a new plan. I've been tracking the fluid markets, human commodities. Tomas opens his laptop and points at bars and graphs I can't begin to decipher. Right. I furrow my brow, pretend to follow. Mama used to joke I got the body while Tomas got the brains. If only I could stitch you two together, I'd have one decent son. Tomas was always good with the thinking things. Math, computers, finance. I played sports and lifted weights. Anything to be out of the house when Dad was around. Back when he was around. Mom in her room? Nah, she's got ladies' night. They're down at Gary's trying to get laid. Gross, I say. Although some dickbag on a bar stool is probably better than Dad. He isn't a bad man, not really, but he is a loser. He has a million get-rich-quick schemes that make him poorer each time. When one fails, he either takes it out on us or disappears altogether, only to re-emerge months later with another doomed line on the American dream. Last time I saw him, he was right where Tomas is sitting, holding the schedule of self-driving bus routes, and a schematic of the local security camera angles. Said he'd pay Tomas and I half the profits if we would only throw ourselves in front of a bus so we could sue. I'm just talking a broken leg, maybe a hip, he said. Those companies have so much money, they'll just write it off. Mom pulled herself out of her drunken stupor long enough to slap him in the face. I moved out of the apartment after that. Plans. Tomas always had a bit of our father in him. Now his scheme involves shorting milk. 
thinks he can triple his investment with enough options and leverage. Buzzes, U-fluid's nearly finished with synthetic mammary glands for the home market. The milk's supposed to be 97% identical to real-life lactation. Tomas pulls up the concept art. It's sleeker than I was expecting. A pink metal tube with a nozzle at the bottom. Looks like it could make me an espresso. The glands are attached to an internal wetware scaffolding. Two models, human or cow, depending on your needs. Goats in the works. I ask him where he's getting the capital for these investments, and his cheeks dimple in the frown. That's the only kink in the hose, he says. It's a kink the size of Kansas. I might not be great at math, but even I know a 500% return on zilch isn't worth a penny. On the computer screen, milk drips out of a silver nozzle into a cup of steaming coffee. I debate texting Tanya, telling her to pump as much as she can now. I don't want to upset her, though. The other day I came home and she was weeping, without even collecting the tears. Why wouldn't my body let me keep it? she said, not looking at me. I know he wasn't for me, but couldn't he have been? Don't I deserve one thing that can't be taken away? I didn't know what to say. That the whole system is garbage? Better luck next time? Maybe you'll win a clone lottery? Instead, I suggested we hollow stream a comedy, and she sat next to me on the couch, gripping my arm so tight I thought she might pull it off. She's got time, though. Tanya's still young, like me. We've got things to sell for a few more years before we have to worry. It's morning, and I slap an almost steak in the pan, then saute greens with the grease. Tanya, want me to crack a few chicken periods in the pan for you? I shout. She doesn't answer. I walk softly to her door, press my ear to the wood-molded plastic. I crack open the door and see her staring at the wall, silent and unmoving. She's got a fork in her hand which she's using to dig ruts in the linoleum floor. I close the door and tiptoe backwards to the kitchen. I have to eat if I want to work. I learned that lesson early on. One of my first gigs, I was bleeding on an empty stomach in a penthouse overlooking the park. I thought I was getting dizzy from the heights. Next thing I knew, security was tossing me in a self-driving cab I couldn't afford. I got a ding on my phone as soon as the taxi peeled out. One star, no tip. You can afford a couple one stars, but only a couple. When your average drops below 3.75, they start taking your platelets out of circulation. Pretty soon, you're draining yourself to regional managers at the back of a Best Buy or CTOs of startups that haven't even started yet. Get below 2.5, and you might as well give up. Your red oil will sell for less than it costs you to make. Food isn't free, after all. Tomas tried to crunch the numbers with a diet of ramen and sample supermarket cheese cubes, but it doesn't even cover rent. Not in this city. I've got Chapman again today. He's come down from his acquisition high and needs a pick-me-up. It was this or a Bloody Mary, but tomato juice gives me acid reflux. As I'm drained, Chapman strikes up a conversation. You ever wonder what it'd be like to be rich? Like you? Sure, I've thought about it. No, he says, his face squishing up as if he French-kissed a lemon. I mean really rich. I don't even have a single billion yet. That's what you need in today's economy. He goes on about the cost of private schools, health care, yacht repairs. I bite my tongue. 
softly, so as not to waste any blood. Afterwards, I sit on a bench outside his office building with a box of lamb over rice, extra white sauce, extra hot sauce. I feel too weak to eat, so I stir it around till it's all the same shade of pink. I close my eyes and try to daydream. Nothing comes. I can't remember my night dreams either anymore. It's like everything inside me has been siphoned away. Then an image does appear. Tanya. Or rather, a whole series of Tanyas. Tanya laughing with me on the couch. Tanya sliding baked ziti into the oven. Tanya shouting at the dumb neighbors to turn down their orb speakers. Tanya's belly swelling. Tanya sleeping. Tanya smiling. Am I in love with Tanya? Am I an idiot? Who can afford love in this economy? I'm in bed, mostly immobile, when Tomas texts. Sorry, bro. Asshole's raising insulin price again. A link follows. Americam CEO predicts 4Q profit tsunami. Don't apologize. We need a new plan, he writes. This isn't sustainable. Don't worry, I got you. But I don't, really. He's going to slip right through my fingers. I pull up a spreadsheet and slot in the digits. Rent, food, healthcare, utilities, debt. No matter what I rearrange, the sum cell stays in the red. My only chance is surge bleeding, the price bonus you get when you hit a 4.3 user rating. I'm currently a 3.9. I log into Bleeder, send pokes to my best clients. I'm close enough to that 4.3 I can always taste it. It tastes metallic and sour, like money. Tanya knocks on my door as I'm drifting off to sleep. Hey. She sounds so chipper I think that she might break into song. Any chance you want to go to the old watering hole? I need to stop thinking for a while. First round is on me, I say, sliding out of bed. We slide into the back booth with our drafts. I tell her I'm sorry about the surrogacy, how it ended. She reminds me she came here not to think. We talk about other things. Movies, holographic games, online articles, stupid dreams. Tanya sips her drink, but her smile is gone and her mind is slipping off somewhere else. Do you ever think about the future? What we'll do in five years? Ten? Sure, I say, unsure what she's getting at. I don't know how much longer I can live like this, Justin. All struggle and no break. What do I have to look forward to? I take her hand, squeeze. My heart is pounding so hard it hurts. But maybe that's because there's so little fluid left inside to pound. The booze might have been a bad idea. Yeah, I think about it all the time. I lie. What do you see? I need to hear what it could be like. Give me a second. The truth is I don't think about the future. I can't conjure it. It's like a big, blank cloud in the sky of my mind. Yet, for Tanya, I try. A house, I offer. Somewhere peaceful that I could settle down, far away from the city, the hustle. A partner with me, maybe a little dog. There's a garden out front and a yard with those spiky fences. White picket, she smiles. Exactly. You saw all that in an old movie, she says. Still, we clink glasses. 
By the time we stumble home, I'm wasted. Being a lush is cheap when your blood's thin, but the hangover makes you pay. I don't remember what happened at the end of the night, other than nothing. I didn't make a move, and Tanya was just trying to keep me upright. Tomas is in my room when I wake up, slumped into my stained, free-from-the-street-corner chair. Mikasa Sukasa, but what are you doing here? I say. My head is thrashing like a rat on a rope. Tomas hands me a Martinelli's while I groan myself awake. Tanya texted. She was worried. Said you threw up more liquid than you drank. Tomas is looking around nervously, in that way that makes me know he's got something on his mind he doesn't want to say. What else? What else what? Tomas rubs his already red eyes. Okay, I'm going to go drain the hose. When I'm back, try to remember how words fit together. My voice has a little venom in it, but sometimes that's okay with a brother. So, Tomas says when I return. Dad's back. Mierda, I say. That cocksucker, that deadbeat bastard. A few expletives later, Tanya comes in shaking her head. You don't have to yell. Also, don't talk that way about your father. She hands me coffee in a bleeder mug they sent for my one-year app anniversary. It has a picture of a woman sipping an exotic drink in front of an ocean as blue as melted candy. Blood tube wrapped around her arm like a red ribbon. Caption, Draining never felt so relaxing. Tomas explains what happened. How Pops came back with a new suit, a new scheme, and a bottle of Maker's. He was trying to rope me into selling smuggled body parts from the Pfizer lab he's working at. Says you can get a couple hundred for lab-grown pinky on the black market. And Mom? She just nodded her head. Don't worry, I say. I wave my hands and try to think. You're staying here now, with us. Right, Tanya? Tanya thinks a second, but concurs. You've got a couch in the living room with your name on it. I remember the year Tomas and I slept on different couches each month, when my father thought he could save money by returning each piece of furniture before the free trial was up. That is, until our family got blacklisted. Now I couldn't buy anything larger than a folding chair. It'll be just like old times, I say, clapping him on the shoulder. Except better this time. I leave Tomas and Tanya to turn the living room into a makeshift bedroom, while I visit clients who responded to my late-night pokes. For my health, I should slow down. No more than two bleeds in a week is the official guideline, and that's without a hangover. Yet Tomas crashing and my dad returning has me nervous. Plus, I poked too many in my panic. If you don't answer the calls, the client's tapping finger starts to wander. There's always another user, younger and hungrier, primed to fill your slot. Top floor, 52nd Street, offices of Karen Hunter. She's the CEO of Body B&B an app that lets you rent out people's bodies for big events. Make sure your future precious memories are properly attended in the pics and videos. It's catching on in the Sweet Sixteen and Mitzvah scenes. Are you activating your organs with a glass of water each morning? She says as I sit. Hunter likes to pry, but she's a softy. Guaranteed five stars. Yoga? Meditation? Keep a positive mental attitude? It's very important to have a positive mental attitude. It affects your whole body. I'm aware, I say, pointing to my painted-on smile. 
Hunter is going to her son's wedding this weekend. He's marrying some Sally Jane nobody from Newark, who probably can't even afford a starter home. Hope your juice can get me through this wedding bell's hell. Hunter always calls it juice. Most of the women do. That or lotion. The men always call it oil. Hunter whistles in her manservant with the equipment. He's all bones with a complexion like skim milk. When he sees me, relief floods his cheeks. She's clearly been tapping him for free. Illegal to do without an approved medical service like Bleeder, but when has the law ever stopped someone who could afford to keep going? Hunter takes off her cashmere cardigan and places one arm on the table. It's marked with pinpricks, fading bruises, little scabs where she's sucked up the vitality of dozens like me. I roll up my sleeve and bear my own blotches beside hers. You know how much this arm is worth? She shakes her head and rubs her free hand across the skin. A pound of me is worth seven million. Want to know my net worth? Guess my weight. Seven hundred million? I offer. I don't know whether you're trying to flatter me or insult my portfolio. But she smiles. I wobble into a lamppost on the way out of Hunter's office, but I stay upright. Then suddenly I'm not. When I wake up, my head is pounding. Luckily, when I touch the back, it's dry. No wasted blood. A guy with a long beard and a thick smell is hovering over me, hands unzipping coat pockets, fingers slipping in. I groan. Ugh! He moves away. Only making sure you're alive, buddy. He shuffled halfway down the block by the time I sit up. I must have passed out. Occupational hazard. Nothing a good night's sleep won't recharge, although my head seems to be ringing. Then I realize it's the phone. I pull it out, worried that it's Tanya feeling suicidal, or Tomas nearing a diabetic coma. But it's even worse. Bleeder notification. Account suspended. Everything moves impossibly slowly, like my arteries are carrying molasses. Somehow I think of my father. What he must have felt in his gut every time a plan went belly up. I tilt the screen back and forth as if the message would disappear if I could only find the right angle. It doesn't. I click the icon. One of Bleeder's sensors marked my oil as insufficiently bloody. The screen suggests I get more sleep, drink less, eat a high-protein diet. I can reapply with a fresh sample in two weeks. Remember, your health is our top priority. A red anthropomorphic drop waves goodbye. I'm screwed. Out of work. Out of luck. And no clue what to goddamn do. All I can think is, fuck it. I'm the big brother, and I'm going to do a better job protecting Tomas than my dad did. Except then, a few days later, Dad is there, filling the frame of my doorway. He's wearing a smart charcoal suit that doesn't fit right, but he smiles wide and, God damn it, I feel my heart beat a little more tenderly. Dad, I don't remember inviting you over, or even telling you where over was. He scratches his recently trimmed beard. Mom sent me. I'm helping her out, since her boys won't. He winks to let me know it's partly a joke. What, more specifically, are you here for? Well, I wanted to talk to you about the rent. I blink, take a step back without letting him inside. I knew his social visit would be all business. You must be confused. You're not our landlord.
The rent is for Mom. The woman whose womb you two fled from? You want us to pay rent for Mom's womb? Dad holds up a hand, smiles, laughs. His eyes are warm and brown. Let's not start off fighting, son. It's been too long. Time heals all wounds, right? Depends on the time. And the wounds. He slips by me, stops when he sees Tomas at the counter eating a bowl of oatmeal. Son, he says, glancing between us. And other son? He looks around our common area at the buzzing fridge and the makeshift couch bed. Thanks for showing me your place. You fixed it up pretty nice. I like that lamp. Tomas is staying here. He's not paying you rent. Dad takes his hat off, spins it around his finger. I think it's great you two shacking up. Well, I hate to insist, there's still the issue of back rent. Back rent? What kind of bullshit is that? Tanya is standing in the hallway, arms crossed and eyes glaring. This is a conversation for blood only, if you don't mind. Tomas is ill and Justin is bled out. They don't need you roping them into dangerous schemes, Tanya says. Dad spins his hat in his hands slowly. You're Tanya, right? I heard about your surrogacy. I'm sorry. Sometimes the womb just doesn't work. My advice is to get back on the horse. Second time's the charm. Dad turns his back to Tanya, blocking her from my line of sight. Tomas told me about your problem, and I'm here with a plan. Tomas is looking at the counter, keeping his eyes from mine. I'm already a day late on my shots. I thought maybe Dad would have some money. Maybe. I may not have money, but I do have a way to make some. Dad strides to the table, big old smile scrolling across his face. He tosses a handful of silver foil packets on the countertop. What's this? I ask. Dad opens one and taps out a little mound of red powder in his palm, gives it a quick lick. Hemosteel is stamped across the foil. Blood thickener. They use it in the parts gardens. Goes in with a nutrient slurry. Helps the fingers, noses, and legs grow. I figure if it helps laboratory replacement parts, it ought to work on the real thing. Dad gives us the rundown. How his calculations say I could double my blood production. Sell twice as often for twice as much. All he'd ask for is 20%. I realize it's one of Dad's classic plans. One that me and Tomas carry out while he reaps the reward. You're a chemist? Tanya says. He's a janitor, I say. Dad frowns, spreads his big hands across our little counter. I'm a guy with access, and a guy with dreams. We have a solution, but it doesn't fit the problem. Even if I get my count reinstated, it'll take two weeks and I'll return Doc to full rating point. Maybe two. Making matters worse, Tanya's dried up. Not even a dribble she says, squishing the air. Her bleeder application was denied, undesirable blood type, and they detected the birth, said she needed six months to restore her iron levels. Tell me the worst thing you've ever heard, Tanya says, walking into the common area. You mean besides what our dad is trying to make us do? Tomas says. I'm talking top-tier tearjerker. People were passing around a video yesterday of a baby dolphin trying to free its mother from a tuna net, I say. No. Stop it. Jesus, really? She finds the video and hits play. The squeaks are something awful. I see tears making the journey down her perfect cheeks. I get up to hug her and she pushes me away, 
I'm working here. She lifts a blue plastic gizmo to her face that's somewhere between a set of goggles and a chemistry set. I started a cry-by account. I have to contribute to this household, too, so keep the dolphin torture coming. The three of us sell enough hair, tears, and saliva to get Tomas insulin for a week, and the house an industrial box of ramen packs. Then, while microwaving water for the noodle bricks, it hits me like a geyser blast. A plan. One that will work. We'll sign Tomas up on Bleeder. Tomas is diabetic, Tanya says. Tomas grimaces, agrees. You know they test for that. I would have been bleeding years ago if they didn't. Come on. No, no, listen. Tomas isn't in the system, I say, sprinkling the beef flavor packet across the noodles. They don't know his blood. So they won't know when we use the hemosteel-enhanced oil in my veins. That's crazy, Tomas says. I look close enough to you on an ID. No, no, Tanya says. You know you can't trust one of Dad's plans, Tomas says. Tanya and Tomas take turns arguing, offering up every counterpoint and objection. It's dangerous. It's illegal. It's unethical. It's Dad. Once they've run out of rebuttals, I ask, What other option is there? I place a glob of product in my hair, comb it back and set it to the side, button-up shirt buttoned all the way up, khakis with the store crease still intact. I look different. Different enough? Tanya gives me a set of prescription-free glasses she got at the dollar store. It worked for Clark Kent. I pour a pack of the hemosteel in a glass of tap water, swirl, down it with a scowl. It doesn't taste like much. Then an hour later, my veins feel like they're about to explode. I can feel my heartbeat without even touching an artery. Maybe we should slow down, test it a little, Tanya says. I can feel the blood begging to be let out. Too late. I'm testing it live. Chapman doesn't recognize me. You're scrawnier than my last guy, he says. You need to lift more, rotate upper and lower routines. I tell him I will, and then he barely looks at me again. He doesn't suspect a thing. None of my other clients do either, as I make the rounds over the weeks and months. I might as well be a walking six-foot artery for all they care. But that's okay, because Tomas, Tanya, and I are saving up money now. Dad's plan actually works. We're buying takeout tacos and coffee we don't have to steal from hotel lobbies. Tomas has enough insulin he could bathe in it. Well, not literally, but enough. Tanya's looking at surrogacy again, and every Friday Dad comes by with a new satchel filled with smuggled powder and a waiting hand. He counts his cut with a paternal smile. You boys made good. I can't even begin to tell you how proud I am. Tomas and I are stiffing him 5%, but he can't complain. A trick we learned from him, no less. Aren't you afraid the lab will notice the packet's missing? It's a calculated risk, Dad says. Plus, by my calculations, if things keep going this well, I can quit in a couple years. Retire. You know how long I've been waiting to do that? Dad's happier than I've ever seen him. He got his graying beard trimmed right to the jawline, and most times he comes over he brings us a bag of cookies. Fresh out of Mom's oven. It's almost like we're a real family again. Or, for the first time. Everything's good, except my body. The hemosteel is making me feel strange. Stuffed. 
I sweat constantly, and the fingernails on my left finger are turning a strange purple color. This morning I was shaving and noticed what I thought was a pimple. When I ran the razor over the mound, a red spurt hit the bathroom mirror. I went through half a wad of toilet paper, stopping the leak. Otherwise I'm happy. When I'm riding buses through the city now, I no longer feel like a parasite swimming through the arteries of a hostile body. I've got money. I've got a future. I belong. One night, Tomas is at the public library studying the markets, and Tanya and I are alone, buzzed under the blanket on the couch. We're a third of the way into our second bottle of wine. We're watching an adaptation of Little Red Riding Hood, and the wolf has just slipped into Grandma's skin. Tanya lets her cheek fall against mine. The corners of our lips inch closer. Then we're in it, lips on lips, tongues on tongues. Regrettably, a bit of teeth on teeth. It's been a while. I feel light. Alive. Tanya gets on top of me. The glow of the TV washes over her back. I try getting my hands to places she's already gotten hers. Wait. She looks me in the eye. Are you sure you want to? I'm sure. Are you sure? Yes! Although, are you sure you're sure? Assured, we strip each other, helping with certain buttons and clasps. At some point, I can't hear or see anything. I'm only feeling, hot and throbbing feeling. Then the feeling starts to feel kind of bad. The sweat smells wrong, and the blood pumping through my system is thick as sludge. Shit, I say. Tanya sits up. What's wrong? Was this a mistake? No, no, it's not a mistake. It's the last thing from a mistake. But... She looks at my underwear, where my member lays unengorged. I know the spirit is willing. It's the flesh that's gunked up. And it hits me. The blood thickener. Did I have too much? Did it clog me up like grease poured down the drain? It's all right, Tanya sighs and lays beside me. She stares at the ceiling and lets her hand inch down her stomach. It happens. I'm going to finish off. Just lay here with me, okay? Wait, wait, I say, working myself to something functional. With enough friction, the blood starts moving again. Okay, I say, unsure if it is. A couple days later, I'm triple-counting Dad's cut as he squints at my blackening fingernails. My fingers leave damp prints on the bills. You're looking a little under the weather, son. Just been working a lot, I say, scratching my neck. I've been getting more of the blood pimples around the collar. When I pull my fingers away, they're slick and pink. Dad cocks his head. He nods. I was thinking it'd be nice to have a family meal. He wipes the bills on his shirt and slides them in his pocket. See your old mom. Have a home-cooked dinner. Hell, bring Tanya. She seems a little lonely on her own. I'm against it, but Tomas thinks it couldn't hurt, and Tanya says it might be nice. So later we're sitting around the little rickety dinner table while Dad hums in the kitchen. What do you do for a living, Tonya? My mother says. She pours herself another glass of wine from the box. Her lips are already purple. Tanya, Mom, Tanya. Tanya looks away, tucks her hand under her shirt. I'm between things at the moment. She might start bleeding soon, I offer. Her application is in the queue. That's nice, Mom slurs. 
She closes her eyes. That's very nice. If she wants the hemosteel hookup, just let me know. Dad walks over, carrying a heap of pasta and a basket of bodega bread. He winks at her. I can give you the family rate. The food is oversalted, and the conversation strained. Tanya tries to talk to my mom about how I was as a kid, but mom's stories are more fiction than fact. Just in here was my little track and field angel, state champion shot putter, she says. Tanya gives me the surprised eyes. I was second place in the borough for long jump one year, I explain. Tomas keeps trying to tell Dad about his market strategies while Dad brushes him off. That's good, son. It's important to have dreams. Hey, Justin, he says, turning back to me. He starts grilling me about my vessels, how the drug is holding up, my bleed rates, percentage income increase. When we're clearing the table, Dad pulls me into the back room. Let's let the girls and Tomas clean up. He shuts the door and says he's proud of me. Um, thanks? Dad sits on the edge of the unmade bed. Did I tell you about work? I wasn't sure you were familiar with the concept. Smartass. He hangs his head. Son, I haven't been able to meet my quotas recently at the Pfizer Parts Garden. Not scrubbing enough fingers and toes. We can't water the synthetic eyeballs fast enough. I'm losing my edge, son. I'm too old, too tired. You know how hard I've worked my whole life? For you and Tomas and Mom? You were barely even around. That's because I was off looking for work. He frowns and clenches his fists. And Einstein, if I lose this job, then you lose your hemosteel supply. It's bad for all of us. Anyway, I just want you to know how proud I am. I know this line. He's trying to sweet-talk me before asking something I won't like at all. What do you want from me? Only a little edge, a little youth. A little help from a son to a father, he says. His eyes are big and dark. He looks at my veins, then his. I need a bleed. Of course. What does anyone want from me? Yet somehow I feel a great pity for this man. This shitty father standing in the dark of a dirty apartment. Face wrinkled and head hung, asking for a taste of my wares. I say okay, just this once. Before I even finish the words, he's got the equipment out. I'm really so, so proud of you. He puts one hand on my shoulder and slides in the needle with the other. And a few seconds later, he's shouting, Jesus Christ! I look down and the blood oozing out of the puncture wound, thick as paste. The skin is ripped around the incision. That's not supposed to happen, I say. I'm on my side in my ancestral home, red vomit staining the linoleum floor. Someone has wrapped a bandage around my hand. I'm trying to figure out what percentage is wine or sauce, and what amount is wasted blood. Tanya is beside me, hands holding my face. She shouts over her shoulder, What poison have you been giving him? Tomas is trying to be scientific. What are the side effects? Help! what are the main effects? Dad holds one of the hemosteel packets. He's still got the needle hanging from the crook of his elbow. He looks angry, sad, and feral. Father, I remember. What do I look like? A rocket scientist? You were all in on this just as much as me. My own arm is extended in front of me, fingers in the vomit pool. 
My veins are almost as purple as my mother's wine-stained lips. It's okay. I sit up, sort of. My breath is short. I'm alive. Let's go. What happened, baby? Why are your veins all dark? Mom says. She's still at the kitchen table, hand-gripping glass. I realize Dad hasn't told her a thing and she hasn't bothered asking where the extra money was coming from. They use it in the lab. It's got to be safe. Dad keeps flipping over the packet, squinting as if he'll suddenly discover the answer to everything in the fine print. At some point, I slide back into the dark pool of my mind. When I wake up again, Tanya's spooning me on my twin mattress. She's got an arm locked on my chest. She's begging me to stop using the powder. We can find another way. There's always another way. I groan in assent, close my eyes again. She's right. I should stop. And I will. Just as soon as we save enough money. As soon as we figure out something else. As soon as we're okay. I rest for a couple days. Then get back to work. I need to. There's still bills to pay, groceries to buy, and insulin to acquire. Dressing for my appointment... I see my veins and arteries have lightened slightly. But the blood pimples are everywhere and the fingers on my left hand are engorged purple slugs. Clients may not recognize me, but they notice my goods are crooked. Chapman takes one look at me, flips out his phone, and cancels the appointment. Maybe another time, he says, locking the office door. I'll have my people call your people. Across town, Karen Hunter is aghast. I don't think I want what's inside you even in the vicinity of me. I run my hand over my face. My palms are slick with a pink sauce of sweat and blood. This is goddamn gold, I say, desperate. She's my last hope. I hold up my arm, point at the artery in the crook of my elbow. Primo stuff, I promise. God, I need to get it out. Even though I've stopped taking the powder, the chemicals are inside me, building up until I explode. Hunter's assistant steps between us. Should I call security? How the hell haven't you already? She says from behind his back. I'm back in bed, immobile and fevered. Tanya comes in every now and then to stroke my head with a warm washcloth. She bleeds me a bit into a thermos. There's a stack of them against the wall. Tomas researched online. If I don't let it out regularly at this point, my veins will gunk up until I can't even move. I'm not sure how long I'm in my tiny apartment. Helpless in front of the people I was trying to help. The days seem to go back and forth. Time itself bleeds. I wake up and fall asleep, glimpse little snippets of life before sinking back into my sea of failure. My eyelids feel heavy as anvils. In the dreams, I'm in a small wooden boat. I have to lay on my back to fit inside. The stream is carrying me somewhere. It doesn't really matter. What matters is, I'm desiccated. A shriveled vine. All I want is to reach over the edge of the vessel and scoop up a cool handful of water. Yet when my fingers touch the current, the river is thick, warm, and throbbing. Then, one day or another, I'm awake for long enough to uncrust my eyes. Tomas and Tanya are standing beside the bed. This time they're smiling. Tomas has something to tell you, Tanya says. Tomas holds up a couple sheets of paper. He's grinning and nodding. 
I can't read that, I mumble. I look around for a glass of water. It hurts to move. When I look at my hands, they're purple and cracked. I try to bend my fingers, but flinch in pain. I told you, I did the research, see? Tomas says. No, not really. My plan worked. What plan? My market strategy. Playing the human commodity sector? It's going to be okay. I can't fully follow his explanation of volatility and leveraged options, but I learn he found the shoebox in Mom's closet where Dad was stashing his cut. A big pile of bills, rubber-banded and tucked into a pair of boots, like Dad was saving up enough to split town. Figured it was fair to take. Brother's keeper's rules and all that. Isn't it finder's keeper's? I say. Either way, I get to take care of you now, brother. I feel the pressure leaking out from little holes along my skin, like my body is a pleasantly deflating basketball. Maybe it'll be okay after all. With Tomas taken care of, that's one less person for me to fail. Good. I try to push myself up, but my fingers scream. I settle on my elbows. Take the money and get away from our messed-up family and dying city. Don't worry about me. You deserve a better life. I'll deal with Dad. Tomas squints at me, annoyed. I'm not going anywhere. Just because you're a couple years older doesn't mean you're the only one who can do anything. It's not like that, I say. There's not enough money left over anyway. After what? The lawyers. You're coming along nicely, Dr. Lanoff says months later, after everything has been sorted out and settlements signed. His face is on my screen while he's remote-controlling the machines hooked up to my body. The IV bag beeps as he remotely increases the drip rate. It doesn't feel nicely. The doctor's face stutters as he chuckles. Pain is medicine sometimes. Our body has to go through trauma to build up its defenses. You can't make antibodies until your body has been attacked. Raw deal, I say. The hemostel should be out of my system in another two months. Or so Dr. Lanoff says. Still, it'll be a long time before I can afford to sell my blood. In fact, I'd scratch that skill from your CV. Let's keep your fluids on the inside for a while. Despite the doctor's phrasing, my blood doesn't stay inside. I've got four tubes draining me from each limb, straining through a purifier and pumping it back in. I watch it spin around these tubes all day until I'm dizzy. You're almost done with your nutrient drips, the doctor says. I'll drone over some fresh ones this week. I'll look out for them. I attempt to scratch my cheek. My face is dry all the time these days, even though I'm going through IV bags so fast I'm practically chain-smoking them. The blood pimples have drained, leaving flattened red sores. When I scratch, my nubs run smoothly along the flaked skin. Months in, and I still forget. How are the hands doing? Lanoff asks, noticing my struggle. I look at what's left of my hands. I lost all the fingers on the left, and only kept the thumb and forefinger on the right. Chemical-induced gangrene. Lanoff snipped them off with a surgical drone while I slept. Don't give up hope. The doctor shows me his palms on the screen. It's a new age. There's some exciting treatments on the horizon. One company has been experimenting with lizard DNA. You might be able to regrow a finger with a few pills if the trials go well. The future could be very exciting. 
The future is always exciting, I think, if you can afford to hold out for it. And now I can. Bleeders paying for the whole treatment. For the doctor, for the medicine, for drone deliveries, everything. At first they tried to countersue, but the lawyers Tomas hired were canny. They leaked my story online and soon Bleeder changed course. We ran the numbers, Chapman says in our weekly strategy meeting. It's actually cheaper to pay you off. This way it's good publicity. Poor kid makes good with Bleeder app. Bootstraps himself into the middle class. An inspirational story. You're like the child who saved up for summer camp selling lemonade by the side of the road. It wasn't lemonade, I say. He frowns, adjusts his scarlet tie. Listen, we're paying you more than lemonade, too. He means be grateful. He means don't bite the hand that feeds. He means shut up. And I do. I'm one of Bleeder's bleed ambassadors now. Am I working for the enemy? Of course. They're the only ones you can work for anymore. Dad skipped town again, went off to chase the American dream in a state where he didn't have an outstanding warrant. I hope, despite everything, he gets away. I like to imagine him on some distant automated farm, leaping over the fence as the cop cars screech into the driveway, and sprinting into the towering cornfields never to be found. I guess at the end of the day, he's still my blood. As for Mom, Tomas got her into rehab. He's staying in her apartment while she's getting the disease out of her system. He can afford to do it with his new job. Tomas's commodity plays were monitored by a hedge fund's bot, and the firm brought him in to tweak the algorithm. He's working on putting himself out of a job, I guess, but at least he's working. And then there's Tanya and me, with a third on the way. A little girl they had to suck out of me with a big needle and blend with Tanya's eggs before injecting back to safety. We couldn't conceive in the traditional way. Not in my condition. I don't mind. My only worry is that the baby will inherit whatever is rotten inside me. The bad medicine or the bad genes. Maybe both. Tanya tells me to shut up as she wheels me to the balcony. She'll be fine. The hospital says she's healthy. Plus, she's a fighter, like her dad. That sounds like a line from an old movie, I say. They all are. We live in a bigger place now. Not too gaudy, but the kitchen is separate from the living room, and the windows have a view that isn't a brick wall. It's nicer, and it costs more, so there's barely any money left over. Barely any relief. Still, barely is more than none. It's evening. The air is warm, and someone's blasting music on the stoop across the street. Tanya's letting me have a bit of wine in a glass I hold with my two remaining fingers. She's drinking seltzer with a couple wedges of lime. We're on a tiny jet of concrete the condo association calls a balcony. It's hard not to think it might just snap off, smashing us on the sidewalk next to the mounds of gum and desiccated dog shit. Yet it's holding so far. A few drones putter by, advertising new apps, new ways to buy and sell. I watch them float off, looking for the next sucker. Tanya is totaling our expenses. A nightly activity. Doctor's bills, diapers, formula and blankets. I say we'll have to cut back a little. Or take in a little side income. Something other than blood, I say when Tanya tries to interrupt. Don't even think about joking about thinking about it. She sips her drink and I sip mine. The sun is going down, spurting deep red light across the entire skyline. The color washes over us. 
Isn't there a point where things get easier? I ask. Sometimes, Tanya says, but not most of the time. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And there you go. Big thank you, Lincoln. Th- Lincoln, thank you so much indeed. Lovely to have you on. First time on Starship Sova. And Anthony, I could come over that layer, lad, and give you a big hug. Thank you for kind of doing all the work for Starship Sova. You are a star, an absolute star. Thank you indeed, gentlemen. So, it is left to our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Ames! Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back on genre history. And I have a very timely topic to talk about today. I've been looking forward to this. But first, a word of preface to tell you how I reached this subject, how I came to want to discuss this with you. It seems like we're in a moment right now in which everywhere you turn, there are new conversations or new additions to old conversations about artificial intelligence. Speaking as a professor, I note that right now colleges and universities are moving to devise new policies related to AI, methods of detecting its use by students in their assignments, for example, and professional norms related to AI and research in different academic fields. At the same time, publishers and editors and authors are discussing what AI means, for submissions of writing, research, artwork, for issues of copyright and consent, for contracts and negotiations, and the ethics of storytelling. AI affects the social media landscape and the privacy of online data, and it affects fields as diverse as, well, medicine and engineering, law and law enforcement, art and editing, Professional actors, singers, narrators, artists, you name it. It's in the news. I was reading just this past week in Nature a feature by Celeste Beaver entitled Chat GPT Broke the Turing Test. The race is on for new ways to assess AI. Subtitled 
Large language models mimic human chatter, but scientists disagree on their ability to reason. So, given the conversations about AI are everywhere, my mind turns to the stories we've been told over years, over generations, and in turn, the stories we tell ourselves about AI, our utopian hopes and our dystopian fears about AI, and how stories, in turn, affect who studies and creates AI, how policies about AI are created, and even how the media reports stories of AI. Are we creating our new best friends or our future overlords? In short, the stories that we tell matter, and so I went in search of some good discussions of how, over the years, over the generations, over, that's right, genre history, AI has been treated. And, ah, I found a great source, and I want to share that source with you today. I want to do something of a book review here of a tremendous anthology from Oxford University Press. It is called AI Narratives, A History of Imaginative Thinking About Intelligent Machines. It's edited by Stephen Cave, Conta D. Hall, and Sarah Dillon. And it was published in 2020. And this anthology, in short, provides essays that trace how intelligent machines have been portrayed and discussed and explored in stories from antiquity to today. Let me give you a bit of the official description of this anthology. Quote, from the Greek god Hephaestus's golden handmaidens to the Terminator, what we now call artificial intelligence, AI, has long been a part of Western culture. As real AI begins to touch on all aspects of our lives, these stories shape our expectations, providing a backdrop of culturally entrenched hopes, fears, and possible futures. AI Narratives is the first book to explore this history of imagining intelligent machines. End quote. And it goes on to say, quote, This book explores the relationship between imaginative narratives and contemporary debates about AI's social, ethical, and philosophical consequences, including questions of dehumanization, automation, anthropomorphization, cybernetics, cyberpunk, immortality, slavery, and governance. The contributions from leading humanities and social science scholars show that narratives about AI offer a crucial site for exploring contemporary debates about these powerful new technologies, end quote. So when I got my hands on this book, my plan was to dip in and out and look at essays that specifically spoke to my interests, but I ended up <laughs> reading the book cover to cover because I didn't want to miss anything. It's a uh, treasure house of insights. So the work is divided into two parts. The first deals with historical narratives about intelligent machines. So it goes from antiquity to the 20th century with a focus on different historical periods in Western history. Antiquity, the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, 18th century, 19th century, 
up until the beginning of the 20th century. And then the second section is a bit more thematically focused, looking at 20th and 21st century narratives. Very appropriately, the line of demarcation between the first section and the second section is a turning point, namely the January 1921 premiere of the play R.U.R., a science fiction play by Czech writer Karl Čapek. R-U-R stands for, translated, Rossum's Universal Robots. And yes, the Czech word robota, meaning forced labor, is where we get our term robot. And the play was a huge success. British and American productions followed in the next couple of years, and by 1923, the play had been translated into 30 languages. It was sort of a watershed moment. It really touched an international nerve related to both anxieties and fears and hopes and dreams. And to quote Paul March Russell in the essay Machines Like Us, Modernism and the Question of the Robot, the conversation changed and gained speed after Chopek. And, quote, modernist representations of AI therefore generate a series of questions, the most fundamental of which would only be addressed by later AI narratives, and in particular, the growth of science fiction as a genre to think with, end quote. I really like that, science fiction as a genre to think with. That's really what this entire anthology is about, how we have thought with science fiction and proto-science fiction about intelligent machines. And I should note that this is a study that defines thinking machines quite broadly. We don't really have the term AI as an artificial intelligence until 1955, and the field until the following year when the Dartmouth Summer Research Project on Artificial Intelligence was held. That's considered to be, according to this work at least, sort of the origin of the modern scientific inquiry or field in an organized, intentional kind of way. So earlier readings prior to this time period, these scholars are defining artificial intelligence broadly, but the questions they ask are fascinating. This first section begins with Genevieve Lively and Sam Thomas's essay, Homer's Intelligent Machines, AI in Antiquity, and that essay analyzes Homer's Iliad and Odyssey for depictions of machines or ancient mind models that depict thoughts and minds. Moving to the second essay, E.R. Truitt's Demons and Devices, Artificial and Augmented Intelligence Before AI, looks at the medieval period and talks about the ways that different thinking machines, defined broadly from artificial servants to intricate optical devices that allow for information flow from wide distances and surveillance, 
how these kinds of machines serve to consolidate power, basically to maintain those who do have power in power, or to put it another way, how early understandings of technology were inherently political. As you might imagine, there's a degree of evergreen, contemporary relevance in the ideas in this essay. Still focused on the medieval period, the third essay, The Android of Albertus Magnus, A Legend of Artificial Being, is by Minsu Kong and Ben Halliburton. And this essay took me by surprise. There were some real gems in here. The topic is the magical device that supposedly was created by the medieval philosopher Albertus Magnus, who lived roughly 1200 to 1280, that was artificially created in the shape of either a human body or a head, depending on where you get your story there. It was first told of in the 1373 work, perhaps written by Florentine merchant Matteo Corsini, entitled Rosario della Vita. And here I want to quote a translation in Kong and Halliburton's essay of the description here of this marvelous tale, one of the first depictions of Albertus Magnus's android. Quote, We find that Albertus Magnus of the Preaching Friars had such a great mind that he was able to make a metal statue modeled after the course of the planets and endowed with such a capacity for reason that it spoke, and it was not from a diabolical art or necromancy. Great intellects do not delight in such things, because it is something that makes one lose his soul and body. Such arts are forbidden by the faith of Christ." One day a monk went to find Albertus in his cell. As Albertus was not there, the statue replied. The monk, thinking that it was an idol of evil invention, broke it. When Albertus returned, he was very angry, telling the monk that it had taken him thirty years to make this piece, and that I did not gain this knowledge in the order of friars. The monk replied, I have done wrong, please forgive me. What, can't you make another one? Albertus responded that it would be 30,000 more years before another could be made, as that planet had made its course and would not return before that time. End quote. So you have this artificial construction that can reason, that can converse, and it has been created in a way that speaks to arcane knowledge of the planets astronomical knowledge going into this reputed invention. I should note here as a sort of side point that another depiction, another retelling of the Albertus Magnus story comes from the 1625 work Apology for All the Great Persons Falsely Suspected of Magic by Gabriel Naudet, and this work seems to be the work in which Android was first used to describe a machine in the shape of a human being. Quote, Nade begins by denouncing various views of Albertus as a practitioner of magic before making a reference to the fable of his android, a word constructed from the Greek andros, man, and the suffix oid, type of, 
so meaning a kind of man, or a man-like being. This appears to be the very first time it was used to denote a machine in the shape of a human being. Before android became a familiar term in modern science fiction, it appears a number of times in the early modern period." It's interesting to see how the depictions of this talking head reflect a lot of different reactions, from fascination to fear, as in changing times and in changing contexts, the authors are reflecting contemporary attitudes about intelligence, about creation, about technology. The next essay moves us to the Renaissance. In Artificial Slaves in the Renaissance and the Dangers of Independent Innovation, Kevin Legrandier talks about another talking head, this one supposedly built by a natural philosopher. In Robert Greene's Elizabethan comedy, Friar Bacon and Friar Bungay, from 1594, and the author connects this to also Renaissance stories of the Golem of Prague and of Paracelsus's homunculus, talking here about the ideas of human invention and how innovations like the ones described may be related to slavery and indentured servitude. Julie Park's essay, Making the Automaton Speak, Hearing Artificial Voices in the 18th Century, goes on to think about the connections between artificial voice and intelligence, the way we think about what makes us human and what we can say and what we can hear. And this too seems particularly relevant in an age of intelligent assistance we know only as voices, such as Siri or Alexa. As you could tell here by the title, this moves us to the 18th century. And that's where we stay with Megan Ward's essay, Victorian Fictions of Computational Creativity. Ward's essay was another standout for me. I took a lot of notes that I will (laughs) spare you from. But I have long been fascinated by Augusta Ada King, Countess of Lovelace, usually called Ada Lovelace, who lived from 1815 to 1852, English mathematician known for her work on Charles Babbage's proposed general-purpose computer. Ward describes her here as mathematician, gambler, literary critic, and poetess. And what this essay does in part is challenge our current assumptions about what has come to be known as the Lovelace Objection. Lovelace wrote that the machine, quote, has no pretensions to originate anything. It can do whatever we know how to order it to perform, end quote. But Alan Turing, in his 1950 article on intelligent machines, Computing Machinery and Intelligence, reframed this basically moving the objection from the idea of originating to the idea of surprising, saying that, well, machines take me by surprise with great frequency. So, in other words, that shifting from an action of the machine, origination, as Ward explains, to an evaluation based on the human reaction, 
surprise, here I'm sort of paraphrasing Ward's point, this shift obscures Lovelace's original meaning. The idea is that actually what Lovelace was saying was involved in a much larger conversation about originality. This is a Victorian cultural discussion, Ward explains. Quote, Overall, Lovelace's notes offer a vision of human-machine originality, one that participates in a larger conversation about the relationship between humans and machines in Victorian culture. Lovelace's contribution to the field might be more accurately stated, not as skepticism, but as an invitation to develop the machine's capacity for originality and the human's role within this radical new field of possibility. She envisions machine creativity in symbiosis with humans, rather than polarized as either anthropocentric or machine-centric, end quote. Ward goes on to connect this to Victorian conversations about realism and originality, bringing in Charles Dickens and Anthony Trollope, and then noting how Dickens and Trollope, quote, exemplify a larger cultural phenomenon that imagines a variety of ways in which machines could amplify originality rather than stifle it. In this, they participate in Lovelace's true vision, the potential created by human-machine interaction, end quote. There is so much to unpack in this very complex and thought-provoking essay, and I can't get into all of it right now, but I highly recommend it. I've been thinking about it ever since I read it. Fascinating stuff. The final essay in this section, Machines Like Us, Modernism and the Question of the Robot by Paul March Russell, brings us to the 20th century and focuses on the technophobia of modernist literature relating to the question of mechanical intelligence. And March Russell deals with a lot of authors, many of whom will probably be familiar to you. Edmund Husserl, Albert Robita, Emile Zola, Ambrose Bierce, Samuel Butler, H.G. Wells, E.M. Forster, and yes, Karl Chopek, the author of R.U.R. himself. So this first half of the book, Antiquity to Modernity, really reflects how questions of the thinking machine have been a part of the cultural conversation, the literary conversation, our myths and our legends and our stories for quite a long time. There is an unbroken chain of story about artificial intelligence long before we had the term. And here, I think, I will wrap up today's segment. And in part two of this two-parter, I will talk about modern and contemporary stories about AI. I will offer a whirlwind review of the other essays that take place in the modern science fiction context about artificial intelligence. Again, I highly recommend this anthology, and we will be back talking about the second half next time. This is AI Narratives, A History of Imaginative Thinking About Intelligent Machines, edited by Stephen Cave, Kanta Hall, and Sarah Dillon from Oxford University Press, 2020. 
I hope this has been of interest, and I look forward to joining you to wrap up this two-parter the next time we get together to take another look back at genre history. Thank you. Oh, Amy, thank you. Thank you. I kind of been, as, as you know, like a couple of times emailing Amy over this kind of period, and sometimes I would forget the email, you know what I mean? She was kind of concerned and stuff. And then sometimes I was in a world of my own pain, to be honest. And I was just like, but Amy, I just want to say a huge thank you. Just kind of, I love you to bits, last. Thank you so much just for kind of sticking by us. So that is. 718 put to bed. Yes, we are back in deep space now. We're looking for stories. Send them in to Starship Sova. That would be fantastic. Until next time, just like to say, good night from me. Thank you for listening.